Good morning, everyone. My name is Maika. I'm going to read the Bible passage for you this morning. So let's get our Bible ready, your apps open. I got the hard copy here. You probably have the soft copy. Can you please open it? And the book of Isaiah, chapter 39, verse 1 until 8. So the whole chapter. Isaiah, chapter 39. At that time, Maduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Isaiah letters and a gift, because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Isaiah received the invoice gladly and showed them what was in his, in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Isaiah did not show them. Then Isaiah, the prophet, went to King Isaiah and asked, What did those men say, and where did they come from? From a distant land, Isaiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Isaiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Isaiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Ezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. So please keep your Bible open. Don't turn off your phone. Pete is going to give a sermon from this passage. If you've got your Bibles there, I remember we're in Isaiah chapter uh chapter 38 and 39 and 40 and 41. How about I pray and we'll get into God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is great that your word, we can still hear it. We can still know it. We can still follow it. Father, we pray that uh, with all the distractions that can so easily be around us when we're on screens at home, help us, Father, now to quiet in our minds and uh, quiet in our, our hearts that we might listen and hear what you've got to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, I wonder if you've ever had this experience. Uh, is there something that you've been really, really looking forward to? Perhaps a new movie, perhaps a new book, perhaps your favourite band is releasing an album and you rush out to get it only to find that when it finally comes out, oh, it's just a dud. You had such high hopes, but you've just been let down badly. Now, look, that's bad enough if it's a movie or a book, but sometimes in life it's more serious than that. Uh, maybe it's an investment you've made or you, know, you bought a house or a car and maybe you had such high hopes, but it's turned out to be a dud. Or maybe it's even more serious than that. Maybe you've been let down by a person. And I mean really let down. Someone you thought that was going to make a real difference in your life, someone that you thought would be there for you, someone that you'd looked up to, but at the end of the day, they just, turned out, they just haven't turned out to be the person that you'd hoped them to be. Now, that feeling of frustration and annoyance and exasperation, that feeling is exactly 
the feeling that you're meant to be having here in the book of Isaiah today. For you see, if you were with us last week, last week when we looked at Isaiah 36 and 37, we were given high hopes. Our expectations had been raised so significantly because of just how good King Hezekiah was. Up until this point in time, Hezekiah, he's been the king of great substance. We saw how under so much pressure from the Assyrian king, from Sennacherib, from his field commander, under the pressure of an all-out assault, Hezekiah trusted in God's word. And you remember, he even offered up that amazing prayer which showed his desire to honor God above all else. He had led God's people, he had trusted his God, and the ramifications for God's people were just amazing. In fact, so good has Hezekiah been as, as the king that if, if you've been reading the book of, of, of Isaiah from cover to cover, from chapter 1, you get to this moment in the book and you might be thinking, gee, is Hezekiah the one? Could Hezekiah be that spectacular king that Isaiah has been talking about, even from the way back at the start of the book? Could he be that stump of Jesse that we heard about way back in Isaiah chapter 11? That, that king on whom God's spirit would rest, the one who would wear righteousness as a belt and faithfulness as a sash around his waist, the one who would delight in the fear of the Lord. Could this one be, Isaiah, be Hezekiah? See, friends, at this stage of the book of Isaiah, we cannot help but have high hopes for Hezekiah because at this stage of the book, the guy has hardly put a foot wrong. And now we come to chapter 39 and, and it all comes crashing down. Now, before we see it crash down, we need to see the context in which this, this fall happens. And that context is chapter 38. And what's interesting about chapter 38 is that it, it is actually a flashback. You know when you watch the movies and sometimes on the screen it goes all wavy and uh, it's to signal to you that they're going back in time? Well, chapter 38 is like that. I mean, look at how the chapter starts. Look there at um, chapter 38 and verse 1. Chapter 38 verse 1 says, In those days Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. Uh, like there was a nation that was in crisis in the previous chapters here, Hezekiah has a personal crisis, and in the midst of him comes his devastating news. Read on, the prophet the Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Uh, Hezekiah is devastated. See, see verse 2, it said, Hezekiah turned his face. It's the next slide, Sarah, just pressed right on the mouse. It's not going, try again. Well, let's look at verse 2 in your Bibles at home. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So in a moment of crisis, Hezekiah's faith seems to be hanging on by a thread here. He perhaps feels a little bit hard done by. Please remember my faithfulness, he says. Uh, pick it up from verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Hezekiah. Just try again, sir. Yep, verse 4, there we go. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I've heard your prayer and have seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life and I'll deliver you from this city and from the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. And look, that is where we become aware that this is a flashback because see there in, that, in verse 6 there, he says, I will deliver you from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city 
I mean, we've just heard about the city being defended back in chapter 37. Remember how the Assyrian army struck down, was struck down by God's angel. 185,000 men were killed. And that all happened in the last chapter. But here, here in chapter, in chapter 38 in the next chapter, it's spoken of as if that's something that's going to happen in the future. And so Isaiah's very clearly had a flashback and he's taking us back in time. Now, why would he do that? Well, hold that thought because we'll come back to that. Now, in the midst of this personal sickness and this personal crisis and where, where King Hezekiah is terminally ill, Isaiah did bring that news. God will save your life and he will extend your life by an extra 15 years. And if we did continue to read the rest of, of uh, Isaiah there, chapter 38, we, we say Hezekiah is given another 15 years. And we also know that during that 15 years, Jerusalem and the people were saved from their crisis as well. And so this chapter here is just adding more and more to the high hopes that we have for Hezekiah. They are so high, in fact, that as a chapter ends, Hezekiah is is singing. I mean, you only sing when you're happy. And it's not just him singing. He's encouraging the whole nation to sing with him, singing that we will praise the Lord our God and we will tell everyone all the days of our life, just how great and mighty and good our God is. And with that song ringing in your ears, we come to chapter 39, where it all comes crashing down. And it comes crashing down in three very brief but brutal scenes. Scene one, Hezekiah receiving the diplomatic envoy from Babylon. Look look at there from verse one, Isaiah 39 verse one. It says, at that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, clearly, this is a continuation of the flashback from the previous chapter where Hezekiah was sick and it looked like he was going to die, but God wonderfully healed him. And now, somehow, the kingdom of Babylon has become aware of it. And so they send an envoy of well wishes to Hezekiah to say just how pleased they are that Hezekiah is feeling better. Now, I realize that that just sounds like a delightful thing to do. I mean, especially given Babylon was at this point in time just an up-and-coming rising superpower. And so it is a bit of a feather in the cap of Hezekiah that they should even care that he's been sick. And really, when it really is amazing that they do because, you know, it's a bit like, you know, you get sick. And the Queen of England hears that you're sick. And she's so concerned about your sickness that she sends the Governor General to your place. I mean, it's, it's the kind of that level. It's amazing. It's so amazing, actually, and so out of, out of the box that you cannot help feeling, I think, a sense of uneasiness coming into the text here, particularly when you remember that in, this, in his singing, Hezekiah boldly declared that because God had healed him, he was going to praise God endlessly, and yet here we are just three verses later with this envoy coming from Babylon, and there's no mention of Hezekiah singing the praises of God to them. No mention of Hezekiah telling them that it was God that healed him. Instead, all Hezekiah does is kind of show off his stuff. 
And it really is madness. I mean, Hezekiah has just been, uh, has just, Hezekiah, this, the, the nation of Babylon comes and they're a nation far more powerful than, than he is. And when the envoys come, what he does is he just gives them a guided tour of all his defenses and a guided tour of all his weapons and all his treasures. And the text couldn't be more clear, could it, that he shows them everything, that there was nothing in his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. It, it's a bit like, you know, there's a burglar and he, you invite him to your place and you open the front door for him and you show him where the jewels are and where all the monies are at your place. And then you tell him, oh, by the way, this, this window doesn't work properly. And, and look, here's the alarm code. That might be helpful too. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, what is going on in Hezekiah's head? Now, what is going on is a classic example of just how dangerous flattery can be. I mean, think about it. Just two chapters earlier when, uh, when, messenger, when, um, when the king of Assyria arrived and a massive army arrived to confront Hezekiah and call on him to surrender, that's when Hezekiah stood firm in the face of an all-out assault, in the face of insult, in the direct undermining of any faith or trust in God, in the face of open hostility, Hezekiah stood his ground and he wouldn't open the gates for them. But now the messengers of the king of Babylon arrive with a get well card and a present and pandering his ego and with all that flattery, Hezekiah just opens the front gates for them. It is stunningly stupid. And it is just worth noting here just how temptation can come to us in all sorts of different ways, can't it? And how the evil one will tempt us with all sorts of different kinds of cunning and how alert we just need to be as God's people. Now, in this situation, I think it's actually a little bit more serious than just a kind of foolish, ignorant decision that Hezekiah is making. Because I, I, I think there's a hint here of willful disobedience. Because in showing them everything, it sounds like Hezekiah is trying to impress them. He's trying to ingratiate himself to the, to the Babylonians. And we should be thinking, oh man, please don't tell us. Please don't tell us that, I, that Hezekiah is looking to make an alliance with Babylon. Because remember, this is a flashback and Isaiah is taking us back in time. And all this is happening before before God had delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrian army, at this stage, Assyria is still very much the big threat for Judah. So could it be possible that Hezekiah is toying around with the idea of buddying up with Babylon for protection? I mean, my goodness, please don't tell us that's what he's doing. I mean, how many times has God told Israel don't to do, not to do that sort of thing? How many times has he told them, trust me for help, I'm all the protection you need? I mean, this is exactly the sort of thing that King Ahaz did that got them into trouble in the first place. Ahaz trusting Assyria instead of trusting God. Please don't tell us that Hezekiah is thinking of doing the same thing with Babylon. And with that thought in mind, things only get worse when you come to scene two. Enter Isaiah verse three. Look at verse three. Then Isaiah the prophet went to, the king, went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say? And where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Now here in this scene with Hezekiah and Isaiah, it's worth noticing a few important details. 
The first striking detail is how that when, when Hezekiah was faced with the Assyrian threat, Hezekiah sought Isaiah out and asked him for prayer. But now in the face of Babylonian flattery, Hezekiah just does what he sees fit in his own eyes and Isaiah has to go and seek him out. Notice also that when Isaiah comes to him, Isaiah very clearly asks three questions. But Hezekiah only asks two, answers two, answers two questions. The question about what did these men say, it's just left hanging. And I think that detail is quite suggestive that the conversation really was about alliances. The very thing that the king knows Isaiah just would be completely cranky about. And so Hezekiah is evasive on that question. And notice also here the emphasis that that the envoys are coming from distant lands there in verse 3. Maybe that's because Hezekiah just wanted to big note himself in front of Isaiah. I mean, these people, they've traveled so far to come and see me. I mean, that sort of thing would be disappointing enough. But I'm wondering here if in that little bit of a detail, there's something we ought to be remembering. Because at a few points, much earlier on in the book of Isaiah, God has already spoken about foreign nations and people coming from distant lands and these people coming to Jerusalem. And back in chapter 2, in one of the most glorious visions of the book, it spoke of a time in the future of God's plans for distant nations to come to Mount Zion, to come to Jerusalem, to stream up the mountain of the Lord, to learn God's ways, to worship the Lord, to walk in the light of his word. That is what we are expecting when people from distant lands come to Jerusalem. And so it is a massive, massive letdown. When, the, when an envoy from a distant land arrives and they come into a response of a salvation, the healing of King Hezekiah, and yet I mean, that, they don't learn anything about God. They don't hear anything about his word. They don't learn anything about his laws and following him. All they learn is that Hezekiah's got lots of cool stuff and how strong his army is. That is disappointing. And so Isaiah says to Hezekiah, look at verse 5 now, look at verse 5. Then then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you will be taken away. And they'll become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And here is why these scenes are particularly brutal. Because in this scene here, there is a bombshell that is going off in the book of Isaiah. For Isaiah says very clearly that in the long term, Babylon will turn out to be an enemy rather than a friend. It will be history repeating itself. Ahaz went to Assyria to be a friend, turned out to be an enemy. Now Hezekiah has gone to Babylon to be a friend, they'll turn out to be an enemy. And the real bombshell is that they will be a far, far worse enemy. The royal treasury that Hezekiah has so helpfully just shown off, it's going to be carried off as plunder. Now now for that to happen, you realise that when the Babylonians come Jerusalem will fall this time. It will not be protected. 
and the royal family, the surviving members of, of Hezekiah's own household, his kids and grandkids, they're going to be, they're going to be carried off into exile along with lots of others. People have incarcerated, forced into servanthood. Now, now, all this happens in an event in history known as the exile. And it all happens because another disappointing king toyed around with a stupid alliance that God had expressly forbidden. And if that's not disappointing enough, our sense of disappointment only deepens when you look at verse 8. Because verse 8 of chapter 39 says, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, there'll be peace and security in my lifetime. I mean, these are the final words that we get to hear from the lips of Hezekiah in the book of Isaiah. And like his life in general, they start promisingly and end poorly. His first words there are, the words the Lord has spoken is good. I mean, that sounds like a promising thing to say. But the sentiment behind them is utterly selfish because we're told he thought in his mind, oh, there'll be peace and security in my lifetime. It's utterly utterly selfish. All he is worried about is that God's judgment will be after his lifetime. And so he won't be personally affected by it. He's just like that spoiled, rotten kid that says, oh, at least my life is safe. And it is with those selfish, petulant words that this king disappears from the pages of the book of Isaiah. And it is such a disappointing way to go out just when we had thought here is someone who would deliver, just when we had thought he might be the one, just when our hopes were raised so high, they get completely dashed. And this is exactly why Isaiah has flipped the chronology and done this flashback, because he wants us to feel the disappointment. He wants us to be frustrated and annoyed. He has deliberately raised your hopes so high that you then feel immensely let down. And the reason Isaiah does this is because it is exactly by being so disappointed with Hezekiah that Isaiah is setting us up to appreciate one of the most extraordinary lessons in the entire book. Isaiah deliberately wants to feel us so let down by Hezekiah so that we might look beyond him for someone else, someone else to come who won't disappoint us. And in the context of the book of Isaiah, that someone to come who won't disappoint us is the mysterious servant of the Lord who is just going to appear seemingly out of the blue, out of nowhere in a couple of chapters' time. And this mysterious servant of the Lord, he's the one we'll look into next week. And the contrast between Hezekiah and this mysterious servant of the Lord to come, the contrast couldn't be more telling. I mean, the last thing we hear on the lips of Hezekiah is that he is only concerned for himself. But the servant of the Lord who is to come, he's going to be concerned about everybody else except himself. In fact, by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 53, we'll be told that this servant, that he was pierced for our transgressions and that he was bruised for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace would be laid on him. And so do you feel the weight of the contrast? 
Hezekiah's last words, uh, at least I've got peace. The servant to come, he will pour out his life unto death to achieve our peace. Uh, he will be the leader that doesn't disappoint. He's the one in whom all of the high hopes of the Old Testament are placed. And when Jesus arrives, he doesn't just meet them, he smashes them. He is far better and than even our highest hopes could have possibly imagined. But we'll see more of that next week. But before we meet the servant, I want you to think of the people alive in Isaiah's day. The people who were hearing this news and alive at the time. I mean, what a body blow this message from Isaiah would have been. I mean, they are, they are barely just about to survive the Assyrian assault. And now they're told that because of their ongoing sin and because of their refusal to learn their lesson to trust God and because of the failure of yet another king, that judgment is going to fall on them in an even bigger way by an even bigger enemy. I mean, it is a real body blow. And with that news, the tone of the whole book changes. This news is, is, is too much for the people to bear. And God knows this. And so the, the tone changes to one of comfort. And really from chapter 40 to the very end of the whole book, the, the next 26 chapters, the, the, the tone of comfort is going to be the dominant note. And it's like that because God, God doesn't enjoy judging people. Earlier in chapter 28, it was spoken of as, he, as his alien task. It's kind of foreign to him. It, it, he, his sense of justice and righteousness and holiness demands it. It's right that rebels get punished, but, but God takes no pleasure in it. He takes no pleasure in the death of a sinner. He loves to save. He loves to rescue. That's his natural work. That's what he loves to do. And so now really the rest of the book, God is going to offer words of encouragement, words for Judah to cling to into the future, words of comfort so that they will know that, that after the conquest at the hands of the Babylonians, they will know that better things are to come. And you get a feel for that straight up at the, in, in chapter 40. Look at chapter 40 in verse 1, how that chapter starts. It starts with these words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It's interesting that the word comfort there is mentioned twice. You notice that? It's not really necessary to be said twice to make sense of the sentence. One comfort would have been enough. But the word gets repeated in order to add emotion and to, to add tenderness. It's the idea here of like a, a mother holding a crying baby and gently rocking back and forward and rubbing their back and, and, and patting their bottom and it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. I'm here. I've got you. It's comfort. Comfort. And we don't have time to go into what, all of what chapter 40 and 41 will say in great detail, but as you read those chapters at home, you get given a number of reasons why the people are and are able to be comforted. Very quickly, the first one, look there in verse 2, the first one there says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sins have been paid for. There's this comfort here of like the king of the universe making a royal proclamation. Announce it. Make sure it's heard. Your hard service is completed. You're free to go. Your sins have been paid for. Now, the thinking person at that time who's reading this in the Old Testament would go, well, well, how's that going to happen? I mean, the exile we know lasted for 70 years. Did that really pay for sins? Really? On what basis can God declare our sins forgiven? And, and, and of course, we've got all those questions. 
But here we're just simply told, and it's left unexplained. It will be left unexplained really to Isaiah chapter 53. But for here, there is just a simple statement. Your sins have been paid for. And the comfort of that is just left to stand there alone in all its splendor. It's going to be okay. Sins paid for. Free to go. And just very quickly, that second reason why they get comfort as well is not only will their sins be paid for, but when it is and they're free, God's just not going to leave them, not just going to leave them stranded. See, when when you get freed from a prison, it can be so easy to go, well, what do I do now? Where do I go? Who's coming to get me? But God is not going to leave them on the front steps of the prison, unsure of which direction to go. We get told here that the Lord himself is going to meet them in order to bring them home. And so in, in verse 3 of chapter 40, you, you read this, this, this famous verse really that a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight paths in the desert. Every valley shall be right, uh, make a highway for our God. Every valley will be raised and every mountain and hill be made low and the rough ground shall be, become level and the rugged places are plain. And here it's the imagery, isn't it, of like driving on a freeway. You know when you're driving a freeway, two or three lanes, and they've just carved the mountain so you can just go straight through. Or there's a big valley and they've just built this massive bridge so that, so that you can so easily head on, the, on your way. And that's the image here of God saying, I'm coming for you. And every mountain and every hill will be cut through and, and every valley will be, laid, will, will be raised up and everything will be level so that I can come as quickly as I can and bring you home. Do you feel the comfort? Sins paid for, forgiveness granted, God himself coming to bring them home. And then the chapters just keep rolling on and more and more comfort is given. And friends, these words would have been very soothing words for those in Isaiah's lifetime, his original audience. But friends, you and I, for you and I, how much more soothing are these words for us? Because this side of the cross, we get to look back on these words and see how Jesus has fulfilled them. Because you see, what happens in history is, is well, the Babylonians do come and they do overrun them and they do go into exile for 70 years. And then in a very surprising moment, the the Persian Empire rises, rises up and conquers the Babylonians and actually allows the Jewish exiles to go back to the Promised Land. It's terrific. And at that time, it kind of felt like these words of Isaiah and the comfort spoken here might be coming true, but, but they didn't. kind of fell a little bit flat. What happened was that Israel kind of dribbled back, and some of them didn't even come back, because when you did come back, the whole place was just rubble. And they, it actually didn't even own the land anymore, because it was now it was owned not by the Babylonians, but by the Persians. And then the Persians got conquered by the Greeks, and it was owned by the Greeks. And then the Greeks get conquered by the Romans, and it's owned by the Romans. And it, and it just didn't live up to it to the hype that Isaiah was talking about here. So much so that when you get to Luke chapter 2 that we were looking at earlier in the year, we hear about a man living in Jerusalem who goes to the temple. He is righteous and devout, and we are told that he is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was still waiting for the comfort. And then in the very next chapter of Luke's gospel, in chapter 3, we meet John the Baptist and what is said about him is that he is the one of the voice in the desert calling out, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his paths, build the highway. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 40. And we ought to be thinking, the comfort's here. And in Jesus Christ, God truly does come in the flesh to save his people, to pay for sins, to free the captives, 
to deliver them from death. And so, friends, if you don't hear anything else more this morning, then please hear this. Our God longs to comfort you. He is deeply relational. He wants to be involved in your life. He cares enormously for you. And he is saying to all his people in Jesus Christ, it's okay. It's okay. You know, we need to hear that. Some of you listening may well have fallen into sin, maybe a little bit like Hezekiah. Maybe you'd give it into the, the flattery of the world and give it into sin. Or maybe you faced an all-out assault and didn't stand firm. The evil one knows all the right buttons to press in your life. And if you've sinned, it's not good, is it? We certainly need to ask God for forgiveness. But hear the comfort in a passage like this. It's okay. It's okay. I've paid for your sins. I'm coming for you. And when God sends his only son to achieve that for you, now that's comfort. And uh, Pete's going to help, uh, help us pray about those things in prayer now.